love and your grace, your, your willingness, your desire to forgive. But we thank you, Lord, that we also see of your mercy and of your goodness uh, when we come to your word and when you teach us how to live life for your glory, the very best life that we can live. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us this morning open our minds to your word. Give us clarity and understanding and give us conviction, Lord, that your word might really be speaking and transforming us uh, as we live for you in this world. So hear us and bless this time around your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is good to be with you again. Seems a while since I've uh, been up here at uh, Welbeck Road. Pre-pandemic, I'm thinking. Um, yes, that's a while ago, but it's good, good to be back with you. Our focus, as you can see on the screen, is verses 27 to 37. So not the whole section that was read earlier, but it's important for us to, to see the context of what we are going to be focusing on. And the title what Jesus is looking for in his people could, could really cover quite a big section of this, what is often called the Sermon on the Mount. That must be the worst, least creative, least interesting title for a sermon ever. It would be like calling this morning Sermon at the Pulpit. Boring, eh? But anyway, it was on a mount, so it was called the Sermon on the Mount by some people at least. But, but really we're talking in this section quite a, a bit before and after of, of what Jesus is looking for in his people. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you will or at least should want to know, what does he want of me? How does he want me to live for him? What is he looking for in me as one of his people? How do I actually follow him? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, this is certainly what Jesus is, is talking about here. He's not telling us how to enter his kingdom. He's done that already. We have that at the end of chapter 4 in Matthew, that Jesus began in verse 17 of chapter 4, began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To enter God's kingdom, there needs to be a turning turning from ourselves, a turning from sin, and a turning to God, a turning to Jesus, a turning to the kingdom of heaven, a turning for mercy and grace. In verse 19 of that chapter, uh, he said something else that shows us something about what it means to become a Christian, follow me, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We are to be followers of Christ. We're to leave the past behind. But here, from the beginning of chapter 5, this Sermon on the Mount, uh, he, he's really talking to his disciples. It begins in verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and he begins from verse 3 to talk about how blessed they are. If they're in his kingdom, if they've repented and turned to him as his follower, if they've become a disciple of his, they are blessed. They are immensely blessed. They're blessed even when they don't look like they're blessed. They're blessed when they're poor. They're blessed when they mourn. They're blessed when they're meek. There's, there's 
uh, an upside-downness to the kingdom of heaven that, that says God's people are blessed people. And then he's spoken about their role in the world, verses 13 through to 16, of how they are to be salt and light in the world, that we are to live in this world uh, quietly having our effect upon uh, the people that we meet, the situations that we're in, as salt and light, giving flavor, preservative, light, where there's darkness uh, in, in this world. And uh, we, we might often think, how, how could we be salt and light? Do we, do we need to organize strategies, have meetings, campaigns, uh, have uh, election campaigns maybe, or, or sign petitions to enact this or that from a Christian point of view or is it so that we can open a coffee shop to reach more people well it may involve some of that but the Lord Jesus speaks about our good works verse 16 let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven we do not do good works in order to be saved, but as a result of being saved. Ephesians 2 says it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Not as a result of good works at all, so that no one may boast. It doesn't end there. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So our salvation is not as a result of good works, but it is for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk uh, in them. So we're called to good works. And really the rest of, of chapters 5 through to 7 develops and explains and unpacks these kind of good works that we are being called to, what it's going to look like for us to live as God's people, kingdom people, Jesus people uh, in this world. And he begins in verse 17, which is why we, we started the reading there, with reference to the law and the prophets, which was uh, a, a way of just saying the Old Testament. Well, in those days, they didn't even call it the Old Testament. It was the Bible. It was the Scriptures. They didn't have a New Testament at that stage. And he began with reference to the law and the prophets, the Old Testament as we now call it, by saying, we're not dumping that. We're not dumping that at all. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he shockingly says to them, and more shocking to their ears than ours, and I'll explain why in a minute in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that was shocking because the scribes and the Pharisees were the strictest of the strict religious Jewish people that were around. They were so pernickety about their obedience to the scriptures. So for Jesus to say, you need to have a righteousness that exceeds that, could look like he was asking the impossible. You could imagine Jesus' disciples that have gathered around him at this stage handing in their resignations and say, I'm done with this. If that's what you're calling to, it's impossible because we know how zealous, how, how, how uh, strict they are in their observance of the law. 
But Jesus, from making that shocking statement in verse 20, then begins to unpack what it really means to have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And actually, it's not as hard as it sounds. Because it's not about, as the scribes and Pharisees tended to uh, emphasize, being pernickety about rules and regulations. That, that was their emphasis. And by way of examples, Jesus shows that the, the scribes and Pharisees were tending to be scrupulous about certain details whilst utterly ignoring others. And they tended to be scrupulous about the external, the visible, the kind of things that would get you noticed as a religious person. Oh, aren't they good? Whereas they didn't really care about the heart matters that were more hidden and wouldn't really get you noticed. A very clear example of that, just to uh, show you I'm not making this up, is in chapter 6 and verse 1, where he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Uh, and he goes to, on to talk about uh, giving to the needy, how you shouldn't sound the trumpet, verse 2, when you give. They, they had these ways of making it very visible and public that they were giving their money so everybody could see and praise them. Said, Don't do it that way. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do this privately. He goes on to talk about prayer and saying how don't pray on the street corners because they'd, they'd set up to pray on a street corner so that everybody would notice. That was the way of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, when you see that, we can say, hang on, it's perhaps not quite as hard as it sounds to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees because they were pernickety about the outward and visible because they wanted to be seen and praised. They missed the heart issues, didn't care about what, was, what, what really mattered. So if we can just go for the heart of things, that is what Jesus is calling them and calling us to do. Now we're going to focus um, on three examples which Jesus ties together, verses 27 through to 37, of what Jesus is looking for and how he's looking for us not to be pernickety about rules, but to, to see the heart of the matter so that we might really live for God uh, in, in this world. If you've got an ESV in front of you, you see they're headed with the three headings of lust, divorce, and oaths. They're tied together in two ways. Jesus ties them together in his words. So you'll notice that the other sections where you've got headings in the Bible all begin, you have heard, you have heard. So verse 21, you have heard. Verse 38, you have heard. Verse 43, you have heard. You get that also in the beginning of the section we're looking at, you have heard. But the next two, he ties. These are a continuation. These are connected. Verse 31, it was also said. Verse 33, again you have heard. He's different. He's tying them together. Why? Because I think this is the other way in which they're, they're tied. They're tied in the sense of that there's a theme here 
We might describe the theme as honest commitment to promises made. In the case of relationships and marriage, that affecting issues of lust and divorce, and in the context of oaths and vows and promises. So they, they, they connect in this sense that Jesus wants us to be true and honest people. He wants us to say what we mean and mean what we say. He wants us to do that in our relationships with the opposite sex. He wants us to do that when we get married. He wants us to do that when we make commitments to various things. And that's the connection, I think, of these three sections. So Jesus wants righteousness, which, first of all, on this next uh, heading, please... Oh, no, sorry, we've got it already. You've got, you, you're ahead of me. You, you're thinking he must have got there already. No, he hasn't. I am there now. Jesus wants righteousness, which includes the heart. That is the focus of verses 27 and 28. But in a way, he's already dealt with this a little bit when he's talked about uh, anger and murder. Uh, you know, he, he, he said to them, you know, there's a command that says you shouldn't murder, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever commits, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be li liable to the hell of fire. What he's saying is this commandment is a commandment to the heart. God isn't just concerned with the outward absolute aspect of not actually murdering a person. He's saying you in your relationship to one another uh, should not hurt one another. It's, it's a heart matter. It affects your thoughts. It affects your words. It affects how you treat somebody uh, generally. So he's already covered this to an extent, but now he goes further by moving on to the next of the Ten Commandments, which is you shall not commit uh, adultery. And he shows that this commandment also covers the heart. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus takes the commandments and says, look, the intent of this commandment, right from the beginning, is the intention that there should be purity in the way that you treat people of the uh, opposite sex. There should not be lustful intent. Now, that's the way the ESV has translated it. Don't take that to be understood as, as kind of meaning that the only problem is when you have a concrete plan to go off and commit adultery, lustful intent in, in that sense. No, it's not saying that. It's, it's talking about literally lust for her, a longing for her, a deep desire for her. As some translations put it, lustfully. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This lust involves a longing to have, not a mere admiration. There's one thing to, to acknowledge that, that um, people as well as buildings and trees can possess beauty. That's, that's a, a, just an admiration. But this is a longing to have, a, a, a lust. 
we know the difference between them. One of the ways you can tell that you've crossed that line is that when there, where there's a longing to have, you're dissatisfied with what you've got already. You want this. Now, lust has always been a problem from the, the very beginning of the world. Since sin entered the world, lust has been a problem. For men and women with two eyes and a beating heart, lust has been a problem. That is a fact. And that is partly because it is Satan twisting and perverting a right and natural appreciation. One of beauty. But for those who are within the context of, of marriage, sex and sexual desire is a beautiful fulfillment of that lifelong commitment uh, of marriage. And yet the devil takes a good thing, a good gift, a great gift of, 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 of beauty, of sexual desire, of sexual fulfillment, and twists that to a longing to enter into relationships outside of, of that loving commitment of marriage. But in our generation, it's without a shadow of doubt that this problem has been massively magnified through pornography, and particularly through the ease of access now to pornography that anyone can get uh, on the internet. So that pornography can now be so easily accessed without anybody else knowing uh, about it. And this is the world in which we live. These are the dangers, these are the temptations that we face. And Jesus is very clear. He wants a righteousness. He wants a righteousness that includes the heart. He is not only concerned about whether you actually commit adultery. He wants to know if there's lust in your heart. That's of concern to our God. And that should make every bit of sense to us. When we understand, as 1 Samuel 16 verse 7 puts it, that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, we shouldn't be surprised that he sees into our hearts and he knows whether there is purity, not merely in the actual action of our lives, but in our hearts, to make sure you have a righteousness which includes the heart in terms of relationships, of, of lust, particularly with the opposite sex, but also in our day with increasing uh, talk of uh, gay relationships, then we need to think of it in those terms as well. Jesus wants a righteousness which includes the heart. We need to keep our hearts clear. And the principle of this passage, of course, and we've not got time to go into it, affects every area of life. It's not just in this context of lust. He wants a righteousness of the heart in every area of life. Secondly, Jesus wants righteousness which uh, in includes... Or, or sorry, which deals radically with our own hearts. Oh, it's there, but not there. We're okay there. It deals radically with our own hearts. Look how radical it is, verse 29. If your uh, right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell 
Well, that's what Jesus wants. He wants us to live in this world with a righteousness that deals radically uh, with our own hearts. It's clear that this won't always be easy. Jesus is talking tough. He's saying you need to deal with anything that leads you towards sin. Now let's be clear, Jesus isn't uh, encouraging self-mutilation. He, he doesn't think that by attacking the body we will get to the root of sin. He's, he's talking in an extravagant way, and in a flamboyant way, to say this is how seriously we must treat anything within us that tends to lead us towards that which is, uh, which is sinful. He's using extreme language to deal with an extreme problem which will need extreme treatment sometimes. The key is don't look at that which causes you to sin. Don't touch that which causes you to sin. Have zero tolerance towards anything that will draw you towards sin. And more than that, he calls you to deal with something, you notice, perfectly good. There's nothing wrong with the eye. There's nothing wrong with the hand. But if through the eye or the hand you are led into sin, deal with that. Jesus is talking about putting a fence up, if you like, to change the metaphor, to keep us from that which is actually sinful, deal with that which might lead us into sin. Will you notice also that this is a call to a personalized response? He does not say, every one of you, pluck your eye out. Every one of you, cut your hand off. He says, if your right eye. And English translations don't show it easily these days, but that is a single person. The your in verse 29, the your in verse 30 is singular, not plural. He's not saying all of you. He's saying this is very specific. You need to know your weakness. And what is a weakness to you might not be a weakness to you, and it might be a weakness to me, but not to you. We need to make our, make our own decisions. That's why there are no general rules. This is where Christians have dreadfully gone wrong. Certainly in previous generations, maybe we're going too, too soft the other way these days, but there used to be a lot of blanket rules. Cinema used to be out, theatre used to be out, TV used to be out. Maybe the danger is these days nothing's out. Judge that for yourself. But what causes me to sin might not cause you to sin. We need to make our own decisions here, and Jesus knows that. That's why he speaks very specifically. This is an individual, personalized response you need to make to your weaknesses. That's why it doesn't produce, and we shouldn't produce, a list of do's and don'ts that goes any further than Scripture itself. You need to decide in your own heart, because that's the focus. Watch out for the clickbait. Watch out for the clickbait on the internet that will draw you down into a rabbit warren to that which will bring you into sin. To illustrate it in a semi-funny way, um, by my own situation, uh, some of you will be familiar with the programme on BBC, Escape to the Country. Perfectly fine, decent programme. Years ago, I had to stop watching it. Why? Because it made me dissatisfied. It made me lust after escaping to the country. Because there's that weakness in me. Now that's a very individualized response. I guess most of you would not feel that need to do that. But that's just a way where you need to spot yourself and make your own decisions. We need to deal radically. 
with our own hearts. And that's true for every area of life. I think that's perhaps illustrated it with the escape to the country uh, comparison. We're not just talking about temptation into sexual sin. There was a covetousness in me. It was unhealthy, needed to be dealt with. That was one way to try and deal with it. Thirdly, Jesus wants righteousness which doesn't look for get-out clauses. Now we move on to the area of divorce and the principle behind this. So in verse 31 he says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, what he says in verse 31 It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. It's not a quotation from the Old Testament. It doesn't say you've heard from Scripture. But this was a mishmash of common Jewish teaching that had taken various elements of the Old Testament and made of it what they wanted. Jews were good at that. Christians are good at that. Watch out for it. And they mishmashed it by saying, look... There are, there, there's an exception for divorce, there's a possibility of divorce, and Deuteronomy 24 spoke about giving a, a certificate, certificate of divorce, which is basically saying, you know, th- this woman is clean and free to marry, so basically, if you get a divorce, give her that certificate of divorce, and all is well. It was being used by many as a get-out clause for marriage, anything you don't like, anything goes wrong, you can get divorced as long as you give the certificate of divorce. Now actually when you read Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 to 4 where that is kind of linked to, there's a long string of if this, if that, if the other, then what you can't do is remarry her later. So the commandment in Deuteronomy 24 was actually making Marriage so secure by making sure that divorce wasn't easily taken with the idea that, you know what, I can divorce her. And then if I change my mind later, I can have her back. That was wrong. That would be wrong. That would be terrible. For marriage, terrible for the woman. And so that is what is being sorted out there. But, but, but they'd missed that. They'd missed that. Some twisted thinking went on to say, as long as I... Give her a certificate, it's fine, I can get rid of her. What were they doing? They were entering into a covenant relationship looking for a get-out clause, looking for a way out so they didn't have to do what they were committing themselves to do. This isn't what God intended. There are some situations where divorce is allowed. Verse 32 says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, because she will go and remarry. That was the way in the culture. So that would be adulterous, because the, the divorce wasn't right or real. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So what, what are we seeing there? There, there is... There are some situations where divorce will be allowed. Now, you might be uncomfortable with me having said situations, plural, rather than situation, because you might think, well, well, there's only one situation, isn't there? Jesus said there, except on the ground of sexual immorality. There's only one 
reason why divorce is allowed, you, you might think. I would say, just hang on a minute, just think a, a little bit more before we rush to that judgment. I don't think we should assume that Jesus is giving an exhaustive, detailed list of everything here. Because, you know, if you go back to verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with a brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, literally, it says, whoever says raka um, will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. We're not to think there that Jesus gave an exhaustive list of everything that would be wrong. He's just giving some examples. Now, it does seem different, though, here, I must admit, with, with divorce, because he does use the word except. And you would think this is the exception then. But hang on a minute, Paul gives another exception in 1 Corinthians 7, the case of desertion, where, where one in the marriage says, I'm done, I, I've gone, that he, he was unwilling to live with. So how do we tie this together? One exception it was seen from Jesus, Paul adds another, and Paul knew Jesus' words very well, and he was a clever man. And he, they were both inspired by the Holy Spirit, so there can be no contradiction here. I think the words of one, one commentator, Leon Morris, are very, it's very helpful. We should bear in mind that he is laying down great principles, great principles that should guide conduct. He's not making law or giving a precise list of occasions when divorce might take place. There may be other within this category here of something which, which strikes a blow at the very core of marriage, like adultery does, like desertion does. It may well be a case for divorce. Let's get back to the principle here. Jesus wants a righteousness that doesn't look for get-out clauses. Yes, there are heartbreak situations where divorce is right, but be careful. We don't enter situations, and this, again, applies to every area of life, looking for how we can get away with something. That may affect how we use alcohol. Do we look for get-out clauses when, we th when we're drinking? Just, you know, push it a bit further. No, we look for a heart righteousness. And then finally, Jesus wants righteousness which doesn't play with the rules, verses 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, the Old Testament verse which the beginning of verse, or, or sorry, the end of verse 33 is based on, put the words to the Lord at the end. But you shall perform what you have sworn to the Lord. And we could look up numerous verses to, to see that. We won't do it for the sake of, of time. I'm not sure why the ESV have, have put the, the to the Lord earlier on. And it matters for this reason. The Jews of Jesus' day had a way of saying... If I make a, an oath to the Lord, I must keep it. If I make it by the temple or by my head or whatever else, if I don't mention the Lord, I can get away with it. I don't have to do it. And that is what Jesus is getting at uh, here. 
And that was, can we not see, a play with the rules. The rules that told us not to swear falsely, to, to be honest and, and true. We make a mistake if we play with the rules and say, oh, but if I do this, then I'm, I'm allowed to get uh, away with it. Jesus' point is, everything is the Lord's. So you can't swear by anything pretending it's not the Lord's. Uh, Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. Uh, your hair, it's not under your control, it's under his control. Everything is the Lord's, so be careful how you swear. The rule intentionally was obviously given to say we should be honest, truthful people, full of integrity and reliability. What a wonderful world it would be if we lived with such integrity and truthfulness in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And again, this is true for every area of life. Jesus wants a righteousness which doesn't play with the rules. You see, the fact is that overemphasis on, on rules and regulations tends to get us rigidly tied up in knots. So, so for instance, oaths taken so verse 34 but i say to you do not take an oath at all now christians have moved on from what jesus have said and frequently said again working by the rules rigidly say you mustn't take any oaths at all so there are particular groups of christians who would refuse to take an oath in court but I think, again, they're, they're missing the point, and this is the danger of, 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 of emphasizing the outward and the rules rather than going for the heart. It misses the point. Jesus' point is that we should be utterly truthful and not use oaths as a tricky way to actually tell lies, to make it look like we're making a commitment, like kids who make a promise and cross their fingers behind their back and use that as a get-out clause. We, we can have it sometimes in business deals. Oh, I've not signed the contract, but you said. Oh, yeah, but I haven't signed anything. You know, it's just playing around. When it's required of us, whether it's court or signing a contract, we can do that. You might say, how do you know? Jesus says here, do not take an oath. Just let what you say, verse 37, be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. But again, wait a minute. Jesus swore on oath did you know that jesus swore on oath after he'd said that this so he wasn't fixated on the outward regulation he was looking at the heart he swore on oath quote by the living god before the high priest in matthew 26 so here it is in this gospel he swore on oath he didn't disobey his own command he understood what was meant to him we need to be wise in understanding this we need to be very careful. If you take this back to the issue of, of divorce, rigid interpretation says there's only one exception, and that is the case of adultery. We've already shown, though, that that isn't fitting with Scripture when separation, where, where desertion uh, and unwillingness to live together is also, in 1 Corinthians 7, seen as a ground uh, of, of divorce. So we need to be careful of a rigid misinterpretation of the teaching of God's word. At heart, the rule 
on the case of divorce is saying there is a massive blow to the fundamental commitments of marriage, then divorce is allowable in God's sight. As we've seen, desertion is another one. I mean, a rigid interpretation of what is given here on divorce would mean if your husband kills your child, no divorce would be allowed. Can you accept that as true? I don't think that fits with the, the picture of Scripture that we're seeing here fits with any sense of decency how can you trust somebody is that not a massive blow at the very core of marriage when if a husband kills a child i'm giving that by way of of illustration to show that there must be other cases how do we understand those other cases by seeing here that jesus never tied himself in knots round a rigid interpretation of a rule this was giving specific teaching in a specific situation Paul opened up the possibility in another situation we must be wise and careful otherwise we end up being like the pharisees hung up on rigid rules rather than seeing the heart of them that's what jesus wants so what do we do we need to hold all these points together and if we can we will be the kind of people jesus wants his people to be in this world as he wants a people with a righteousness that really includes a righteousness of the heart a righteousness that deals radically with our own hearts and 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 the the, t- the temptations to sin a righteousness that doesn't look for get out clauses and doesn't play around with the rules we're going to sing our final song and uh, that will come up on the screen. Let's rise as, as the video starts.